we talk about music, music news, music stuff, and anything else that comes up. Hey, Austin. Hi, Talia. Hey. How you doing? Pretty good. This one should be fun. We're going to do something a little bit different. I'm excited. For sure. We both have had a lot of interest in this story that we're about to tell. And it, it's an appropriate time for us to, to review this story because we're at just past the anniversary yes, of we are. the the crime that's kind of the, the thing that, that brought this to national attention. Which is? The murder of Angel Melendez by Michael Alleg and kind of the club kid phenomena in New York City in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. For those of you who... Um aren't very familiar if you've seen the the movie Party Monster. That sort of brought this situation as well as Rise of the Club Kid to more national and international attention. Yeah. Oh yeah. If, if you're unaware, so let's talk about who the Club Kids were and what they did and yeah, kind of the story behind all of this. Totally. So what we're talking about is Andy Warhol, right? So he was this... I think the, the easiest way to describe it is that Andy Warhol was an artist, but right. kind of outside of what you would think of a, a traditional artist or, you know, one of the masters, he, he did painting, he did photography, he did film, he did performance art, he created superstars, people that he was interested in, mm-hmm. and these kind of celebutants, you know, like trust fund kids right. in New York in the 70s and 80s. And didn't he throw parties as well? He did throw parties. Okay. Um, he attended a lot of parties. Um, back then, I believe they were called happenings. Funny. Yeah. That's fucking weird. Um, and he, he really kind of started creating environments for those parties. So like there was a silver okay. factory in New York in the 70s oh. where it was this uh, empty warehouse space that he covered all of the walls in tinfoil and painted everything silver. So it was just this giant reflective space. That's weird. Yeah. But cool at the so same cool, time. Yeah. So he, when he died in, I think, 89, there was kind of this vacuum left in New York club culture. But weren't most of his parties and clubs sort of set up for these trust fund kids and yes. a little more selective? Like, I don't think we would have been able to nah, have got up and get into these. Not with these shoes, girl. <laughs> so you're saying after he died, there was this hole in the... In yeah, the... there was this hole. That needed to be filled yeah. desperately. Yeah, that's where the club kids come in. And that's where the club kids Fill in come in. Filling holes. Filling holes left and right. <laughs> the the cool thing is they were they wanted to be a part of this scene, but at the same time they kind of wanted to mock it. Yeah, I, well, I think they realized that it, that scene wasn't for them. Yeah. Um, and so it started as almost kind of taking the piss. Like these celebutants were famous for no reason. Yeah. And were incredibly opulent and just very ostentatious and ridiculous. Right. And the club kids took that to the next level. Um, So they took that opulence and ridiculousness and turned it up to 10. So do you think that's where they came up with, like, all the costumes and dressing up and such? I think it's a combination of sort of them wanting to be outlandish but they were also a very creative group oh incredible so it's like a, a way of for them to not only express themselves but to also say that like hey we can do this tune we can do it better yep that's awesome yeah and i mean so in that group there's um you know the big players the ones that we're going to talk most about mm-hmm. today uh james st james mm-hmm. who has gone on since 
Club Kid World to be an author. Um, Michael Alec, who is going to be the center of our story today. <laughs> Most of them he is. Um, considered the king of the Club Kids. He was a big party promoter. Right. Richie Rich. Richie Rich, who ended up um, doing design for Heatherette, mm-hmm. which is now defunct, but supposedly coming back. Yeah. I hope it is. I like, really like that kind of trashy couture you type would, stuff. Dude. Yeah. So trashy. I am. Uh, DJ Kiyoki, which was really weird because I knew of him, of course, like, you know, sort of growing up in this rave culture, but I had no idea that he had this history oh, yeah, with the club kids, and he was, they actually just kind of made him. Yep. The fabulous RuPaul. Hello. RuPaul kind of bounced between New York and Georgia really? in that time, yeah, but really came the RuPaul that we all know and love from Drag Race and Supermodel, you better work. <laughs> work it. Uh, in that era in New York. Also, Chloe Seveny. The actress. Yeah. Um, she was in that whole crew. And did she play herself in the movie as well? She played Gitsy okay. in the movie. Okay. Gitsy was like their, um, she was like Michael's kind of love interest, I think. I don't, their, their sexuality was very fluid. Right. So it's really hard to tell what their interpersonal relationships right. were, you know, from the very outside. Very well could have been. Yeah. yeah. She's gone on to be an actress since, so she's yep. in Kids and... Yep. Bunch of other movies I've never actually seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen kids, of course, but right. <laughs> I'm not a big movie buff. So yeah, so let's start from the start. So these these club start kids, from the start. Start from the start. Uh, where else, where so else they, would you start? They start uh, <laughs> throwing these parties at different um, nightclubs in New York, and then they just kind of start like in back rooms, like kind of wherever they could get like yeah. a part of a club. Yeah, usually party. like like the second room. Yeah, you know. Yep. Yeah, um, very familiar. And the the reason that um, club owners were apt to bring them in was that at that point in time in New York, the, the nightclub scene was huge. Mm-hmm. There were tens of clubs that you could go to on any given night that were offering more or less the same atmosphere, same music, kind of same vibe. Yeah. And so these, these club kids with their crazy outfits and... Um, these kind of over-the-top promotion and party styles were... Well, they brought attention. Right. Yeah, were people noticed to this. that club. Right. This is something different, so everyone's drawn to that. Yep. Yeah, and they Whether would Whether or not do... they want to be a part of it or participate, they're right. like, well, this is kind of cool. Yeah, they definitely want to watch. Yep. Um, yeah, so they would do, like, crazy themes, like, is everything from, like, you know, like a hospital theme... Or they did one that was based off of the kind of like kitsch horror movie Bloodbath. So there was um, a dirty mouth contest that they would have where anybody who wanted could get up on stage and say whatever the fuck they wanted with the goal of having the most offensive statement of the night. And the, whoever had the most offensive thing that they could say would win the money for the evening. I wonder how they would judge a contest as such, maybe crowd's reaction. Like, right. Uh, yeah. Disgust. Yeah. Disgustometer. <laughs> <laughs> so they went from like back of clubs to partnering with Peter Gation, right? Who at the time was like the one of the biggest club promoters in New York. Yeah, one of the biggest club owners. Club owners, yeah. right. Um, so he owned Area, Limelight, Club USA. Like those were, I think those were all actually the same place. Limelight was kind of cool. It was it was in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York, and it was a sort of like decapitated, like decapitated, decapitated. <laughs> We're getting 
That's foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Decrepit. Yeah, good. Yeah, decrepit. It was, a, it was in an old church. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty sweet venue. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so the way that they would promote their parties and, and kind of what really started to get them attention outside of New York This is my favorite part. Is they would throw these outlaw parties. Yeah. Uh, so it's like guerrilla-style marketing almost for these... The, these larger parties that they were trying to throw. Right. The best way for them. They didn't have the internet back then. Nope. They had no way of getting out the word other than going out to the public and telling right. them about it. Yeah. So they would organize large groups of people to meet in specific places at specific times and then party there until the police told them that they could no longer party there. So they would do it at places like McDonald's. Yep, McDonald's in the middle of Times Square. Yes, Burger King. Yep. Dunkin' Donuts. On subway trains. Oh my god. Um, I read a story about one that they did on an old railroad bridge. It was apparently very dangerous, but also kind of fun. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they got pretty popular for that. Oh yeah. Yeah, they were on all sorts of talk shows. Back back in the day when, when daytime talk shows were a big thing, they were on like Donahue and Geraldo. Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, Rivers. R.I.P. So they, they were really good at marketing themselves, creating this environment that, while very outlandish, was totally inclusive. It's kind of cool because like they and strange at the same time because they created this thing because they wanted a place for people who were sort of outsiders and and freaks that weren't a part of these inclusive clubs and parties and such yeah, that they like couldn't that, really get into. Yeah, like that previous elite nightclub culture. Exactly. They couldn't get into that. So they made this for them, but then kind of came inclusive and in themselves. Right, yeah. It was it, it started off very kind of punk rock and the beginning of, of Plur. Yes. And and that whole thing. It fairly quickly got bad. It wasn't all about identity and creativity and music. That was a big part of it, but drugs were also a very big part of this as well. Yeah. So there was a lot of ecstasy. Yep. And at that time it was not illegal. True. Not yet. Also um, a lot of, you know, cocaine, ketamine. Yes. Um, eventually, crack and heroin. Yeah. These club kids were, their job was to go out. So they were paid to appear at these clubs as, like, you know, decoration or entertainment or whatever. Um, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. And a lot of them, part of their payment was drugs. free drugs. So it's not hard to imagine that if you're living this this culture... And then you're getting handed all of these free drugs. Uh, you're gonna take them. Yep. And totally. uh, eventually, you're gonna, you're gonna need them. Yeah. So so pretty quickly, they all became drug addicts, and that's where Angel came into play. Um, Angel was actually he supplied a lot of their drugs, and didn't he? Yeah, he was actually um, an employee at Limelight. He was like a like a busboy or a bartender or something. Yeah. Uh, didn't make too much money doing that. So he started supplementing his income with drug sales. Um, and Seems through that, yeah, through that became a superstar celebrity in the club scene. Um, his, his name was Angel. He would wear these giant angel wings, um, and they're like red or white, different, mm-hmm. you know, huge. So he's easy to find. I was going to say, which easy is to spy your, your, yeah. yeah. He supplied drugs to all of the people throwing the parties. 
So they would want him at the club, and then everyone that was there was always looking for him, so he needed to be. Right. It's 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 hard to say what his relationship with Michael was really like. Well, maybe first we should talk about how sort of our our key players here and how their relationships intertwine. Okay. I like that. Okay, so we've got Michael Alleg. He's sort of the ringleader. He is. Of this. I know James St. James was sort of the head of head of the, the beginning of the club kids until Michael stepped in. Right. And took the reins. Michael, as a part of his employment, got an apartment. Okay. Um, so his his apartment was taken care of. So at various points in time, he would have other people in this scene living with him. He would also pull people from other locations. So if he was contacted by, there's um, one of the... One of the club kids is a woman by the name Brooke, who's from Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gitsy was actually from Florida, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they both moved from where they were to New York and lived with Michael for a while. So Michael starts throwing parties. And these parties get more and more and more popular. Mm-hmm. As the parties get more popular, the group of the club kids starts to grow. And Angel was kind of a later addition to the group. From stories that I've read and kind of everyone who was there's perception of it, they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, doing lines at the bar, literally handing out ecstasy, or throwing, like, kind of party favors from the stage. At one point, Brooke has actually told a story that there was a night where they had a new bartender at area, mm-hmm. and Michael pissed on this bartender from the balcony, and... I think rightfully so, the bartender flipped the fuck out. Yeah, I would freak out. And went running to Peter Gation, the owner of the club. The bartender got fired. Yeah, so really kind of living this insane lifestyle free of any consequences. All right, you want to set up the scene for the murder? Yeah, so um, at this point in time, Angel is kind of bouncing around. So he stays with Michael sometimes. He had done a, a club appearance. And he was contacting Michael to get some money that he was owed. And there's discrepancies as to whether or not that money was for drugs or for his club appearance or maybe a combination of the two. But he was owed money. Right. But he was owed money. Okay. Um, So he went to Michael's house like, dude, what the fuck is my money? Right. What's up? Yeah. Michael, who is pretty, I think, kind of quick, probably shut him down very fast. fast. Because of that, it escalated into... Like a physical altercation. Michael's since described it as like a sissy cat fight. <laughs> That's uh-huh. kind of how I picture it going. Right. So these queens start rolling around. <laughs> I, I'm I'm gonna guess that there was hair pulling involved. I, I hope, would hope that there was. Yes. And it'd be better if it was in costume. That's how I'm imagining it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's 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 yeah, put that. Let's let's, let's that. set that scene. Yes. So uh, yeah, let's say Michael Alleg has like dots all over his face and is maybe wearing like an assless unitard. Perfect. And Angel obviously has wings and, like, a captain's hat on. And hopefully some sort of uh, platform sandal yeah. shoes. Somebody has At to At least be in five platforms. inches high. Right. Okay. So they're, they're arguing back and forth and, and start shoving each other. And Michael gets pushed into a china hutch. Oh, shit. Um, so, like, a glass cabinet. That's when shit gets real. That's when shit gets real. He probably fell into it because of those platforms he was wearing. Right. It was more of an off-balance rather than a, oh, right. I got pushed. Yeah. Don't want to roll your ankle. Mm-mm. So he hits his china cabinet and breaks through the glass and gets this pretty nasty cut on the back of his neck from the glass. And he's like, 
bitch, I am not going down like this. Right. And um, at this point, Angel is on top of Michael now on the floor. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of struggling back and forth. And this is where we get a new addition, because we totally forgot to talk about this dude. Who's this dude? Freeze. Oh, yes. So Freeze was uh, another one of the club kids, also a sometimes drug dealer. Right. um, Who was staying with Michael at that point in time. So he's there. He's there. He hears all this from the other room. Okay. And comes out like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Sees Michael on the floor bleeding with Angel on top of him. Thinks, I have to do something about this. Yeah, he's going to kill my friend. Right. For some reason, there was a hammer close by. I don't really know. I mean, personally, I put that stuff in in a toolbox and closet, but whatever. You know, I'm not going to judge how you keep your house. Nah. Uh, So he grabs his hammer and hits Angel on the back of the head. Shit. Now, this is where we start to get discrepancies in different like stories. Multiple stories. Okay. So, I guess we'll, we'll start with Freeze's story. He was the first to confess. Okay. So, um, Freeze stated that at first he hit Angel on the back of the head with just the handle of the hammer. So, he was holding the metal hammer hammerhead? Yeah. 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 So, he was holding that, hits him in the back of the head with the wooden handle. Mm-hmm. That didn't work because, you know, it's not going to work. Yep. Uh, he turned the handle around, hit him twice Shit. with the end of the hammer. Yeah. At which point uh, he falls off of Michael. According to Freeze, Michael then gets on top of Angel, mm-hmm. chokes him, and smothers him with a pillow. At that point, according to Freeze, they poured Drano in his mouth, taped his mouth shut, picked him up, and put him in the master bathroom. They, they put him in the tub and kind of had this moment of what the fuck do we do? Right. We've got this dead dude in our tub. Right. Shit. Right. And, you know, very selfishly, they realize that this is the end. Yeah. Like, this is it. This is not only have they murdered someone and ended a life, but this is the end of the community that they've created because it's the antithesis yeah. Of the intention of the, you know, the club kids and that culture. Right. So they did a lot of drugs. They're like, let's, you know, how, let's not this. deal with this. Yeah. So they, they left Angel in the tub for a few days. So they just kind of stopped using that bathroom. Right. They put ice in the tub with the body to kind of keep it from decomposing and sprayed cologne and stuff in the room to stop the smell. But after a few days, they decided they had to figure out something. So they went to Macy's and picked up a new set of kitchen knives because you don't want to use your good cutlery for dismemberment. They also grabbed a lot of heroin, like a lot of heroin. Okay. Did as much of it as they could and cut the legs off the body. I too would have to be pretty high in order to dismember a body. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Mm -hmm. So they they got the legs off and they take them. Barf. So they just cut them with a knife. Cut them with a knife. Is Uh, that a thing you can do? Apparently. They take the legs and toss them in some garbage bags, throw the garbage bags in the Hudson. Fuck. Um, Just the legs? Just the legs at this point. Okay. They take the torso, Uh put that in a box. It's a pretty big box. You Mm -hmm. know, we're talking about an adult male. He doesn't have legs, but, you know, still. Take that box, just leave it in the living room. Oh. They left in the living room for a few days. And during that time, they did have parties or, you know, after hours and stuff like that at the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are stories from people who were around 
who were like, yeah, I remember that box being there. Like they basically used it as a coffee table. After a few days of partying with their dead friend in the living room, they realized this fucking smells. Yeah, I was, that, that's what I'm thinking this entire time. It's right. Like, how are people over there? I don't know how long it takes to a body, for a body to smell, but I could imagine only a few days. Well, I mean... They've got this you know, human in, torso that's been cut. In, in their guest's defense, um, they were all junkies. Yeah. So they probably didn't have the cleanest living environments. I, I get that. Um, they also probably didn't have the sharpest sense of smell. So... They take that box, they go back to the river, and toss it in. What they didn't think about was the box was actually lined with cork. So it's going to float. So it floated. Fuck. Um, So this all goes down, uh, the murder itself, on March 17th of 1996. So just a little over 30 years, or 20 years ago. About a month later, Michael Musto, who is a columnist for the New York Post, writes this very cryptic piece about these rumors that are swirling around Clubland. No names are named, but lots of details about the murder. The details that were there made it pretty obvious if you were familiar with the people mm-hmm. who did it. Who did what, yeah. Uh, the next day, page six of the New York Post does an article about it. Cites both Michael Musto's columns and all the rumors that are swirling around. Fuck. At this point, the police give no fucks. They're more interested in shutting down the nightclubs. Right. They're just kind of like, oh, one of them killed the other. Who cares? Right. Well, and and there's no there's no body. Yeah. There's no there's no rumors. evidence. It's all rumors. Right. And and they did a lot of they did a lot of these types of things where they would create these rumors and create these kind of pranks almost to gain yeah. attention. Right. The only person who's really giving any sort of a fuck about this situation, mm-hmm. other than Michael and Freeze, because they just murdered someone, yeah. uh, is Angel's brother. And oh, he's shit. going around New York. Trying to figure out like what happened to his brother. Right. Trying to figure out where he is and what happened. Wow. Michael confessed to a couple of people, people he was really close with, but people who still didn't necessarily believe it. There's actually a documentary version of Party Monster where Gitsy reads her diary entry from when he told her. It's really fucked up because the, the diary entry is like, yes, he told me that he killed this person. He told me he committed this crime. I know I just have to get him off drugs. Oh, wow. It's, so- not, it's not even a matter of like, I need to tell someone or we need to hide or we need to cover up this crime. It's... He's a junkie, and that's where this is coming from. Or he's, you know, he's so fucked he's up all the time. He's fabricating this story because of the drugs. Right. Eventually, this box washes up. I think it washed up in New Jersey, and this body just fucking sat there for a long time. Nobody did shit about it. They didn't even try and identify this body. And and you know, like big picture, like dude had a face, yeah. had hands, like had teeth. He was easily identifiable. The New York City police were focused on the club kids, but more for drug trafficking. Right. They were Um, trying to clean up the city. Right. Yeah, they were trying. This was right when, you know, kind of Giuliani comes in and tries to make New York more family friendly. So finally, in November, um, Michael is actually in New Jersey and the police come and knock him. They arrest him and Freeze. They were in separate places. Pretty much immediately, Freeze confesses. Shortly thereafter, 
Michael confesses. So Michael actually pled guilty to manslaughter, and so did Freeze. Freeze got out in 2010. 2010, yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael got out last year, right? Uh, I think in 2014. Yeah, it was in 14. Okay, 2014. And then his parole is ending in 2017. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, okay. a little less than a year from now. Yeah. When Michael was, was released, he wrote a piece for the New York Post about the murder. It kind of re- it recounts the whole crime. One part that, that really stands out when he's talking about um, the dismemberment of the body. So reading directly from the New York Post piece. We did it relatively quickly, cutting at the joints. There was really no blood left because it had dried. Freeze sprayed Calvin Klein's eternity all over the bathroom to disguise the smell, <laughs> which was a bit ironic. <laughs> so at that point, the club kid thing was starting to fall off just mm-hmm. because of the amount of drugs and the fact that they were so fucked up all the time they couldn't function at the level that they were. That's crazy. I didn't realize how close this was to when I started going to raves and, and different parties. I think my first one was in like 97 or 98. There were still some of the things with the club kids going on, but really rave culture had stepped up in the in the early to mid 90s, but I would definitely say mid to late 90s was the height of it. Just like the, the way that the club kids started out. So, you know, again, no internet. The only way you have uh, to find out the parties were actual flyers that you would get from other parties or record shops. Yep. Uh, and then call the info shops. line. Yep. You got to call the info line. Um, and sometimes one of the best parties I've been to is you call the info line and there's no info until about 5 PM. Yep. The day of the party, because if there was any information on those lines before the party, then someone could share that with the authorities. Right. So we would call the info line um, get an address. We would go to that address, and it wouldn't be where the party was. Right. Yep. Yeah, it was like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> yep. Um, so we would go to this address. Maybe it was a bakery or a, an, another shop of some sort. And at that point, you would purchase your ticket and get a little slip of paper with the address of the party. Uh, and this particular one, we got an address to a Toys R Us parking lot where we would park our cars and a coach bus came and picked us up and took us about a block and a half away to an abandoned warehouse that was completely pitch black, no lights inside. We obviously were not supposed to be there. The only lights were coming from the windows about at least 50 to 100 feet in the air. Um, We had to walk from room to room on wooden planks. (laughs) I don't remember there being a bathroom. Maybe there was a porta potty put in a corner. Right. Or maybe you just found a spot to go to. Um, I remember coming out of there just head to toe, just covered Covered in in black. Yeah. Yeah. I was just blowing my nose was just, it was black. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or you would, you would get to the location and they would hand you a map. Uh Uh-huh. And you would wander around until you found... The where, area and and at these parties you would not leave so like now no is, they lock um, you in right you um, are there until probably five six seven six o'clock. in the morning <laughs> <laughs> you would open the the door to the venue and it would just be like steam rolling out because it's 6 a.m and chilly and right. the sun's out so everyone's covering their eyes because they haven't seen daylight since 7 p.m. Yeah, you know the, the night before. before, and they've been up all night. And right. after that, everyone's going around, um, either announcing on the mic 
or handing out flyers for the after party. So right. you'd probably go a few miles away and head to either an old club um, or another place and have your after party. And then after the after party, we would go to the beach. We would go to the rocks. After the after party is yep. the hotel lobby. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I think a lot of rave culture in those like those parties was mm-hmm. born out of necessity right. um, just because there there weren't locations where you could do because a lot of raves were all ages right well that that's um, the reason why I got into it is because a lot of the music you know I started listening to house music um, you know I just got a mix from my friend on a cassette tape and in order to see that DJ or to listen to that music I had to go to these parties right I mean fine by me but <laughs> you know I was 16. I couldn't get into a club. Right. I was five years away from being able to get into a club. So that was my only outlet, was to go to these parties. Yeah. And it was cool, though, because I could see... It's like going to a festival now. Like, I could see six or seven of my absolute favorite DJs for anywhere from 5 to $20. Um, see all of my friends, because it's this culture. Right. You know, like... Everyone, you would see the same people every weekend. You would meet new people. Um, they would bring their friends, and it was this whole like really cool accepting culture where you're all there for the music. Of course, included maybe you know there's there's drugs and other things going on, but you know you were there for the people and for the music. And it's cool. It's sort of like kids going to the festivals nowadays. You know, I'm sure they they travel in groups and they're there to see their favorite uh, DJs or artists or whatever the case is. And, you know, they probably get dressed up. We got dressed up. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, I mean, uh, fucking platforms. Yeah. First of all, I still see platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, neon fur for fluorescent fur. Ooh. Whole lot of that. Um, different, like, uh, what do they call? Is it, do they call it gloving? When they wear gloves with lights on the tips. I hope so. I'm going to call it gloving. Gloving. Fisting. Handing. (laughs) Fingering. Fingering. I don't think it's any of that. No. (laughs) Anyway. Gloving. Gloving. Uh, You know, lights on the the fingertips of your gloves. I wish we had that, okay? We had glow sticks that we had intertwined in our fingers. And if those bitches (laughs) broke or went out, we were fucked. And we had to buy them. Right. And that was a mess all over your home. Hello. Yep. Just saying. We had to get creative. We couldn't go to Hot Topic and buy pants. We would make our own outfits. I was like head to toe in glitter. Yep. And brace candy bracelets. You yep. would make your outfits. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what the club kids did. Right. They started from scratch. They did. The level of creativity and thought that went into these outfits is absolutely mind-boggling no it's insane the cool thing was yeah it it let them have like this creative outlet but they were also doing it just to shock people and say like you know i mean yeah it was for attention but it was also just to see how absolutely outrageous that they they could get away with you know yeah well and i think a lot of that too comes with age that when when you're a creative person mm-hmm. and you're you're and you're young and you don't necessarily have a pointed outlet for that creativity, it tends to go in all sorts of different directions. So having something to say, okay, I'm going to make something to shock people or I'm going to make something to get attention Mm -hmm. kind of 
puts you into at least a ballpark of where you want to be. Right. Um, and I think that's why since the, you know, the incident, um, we've seen so many of the people who are a part of that culture and a part of that, that group become so influential. Um, you know, I mean, but all of them are, I would say majority of the club kids are still relevant Yep. in the fashion world. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Still completely relevant. I mean, even when we talk about like, um, you know, Lady Gaga, the fame monster, her first album that, that went huge, that was just a, you know, fucking knockoff of 90s New York club culture. Mm-hmm. Um, every song, the content of the, the lyrics was all about, you know, partying and, and having fun. And it doesn't matter as long as you look good. Yep. The aesthetic that went along with it matched that perfectly. Um, along with all of this really weird shit that didn't really have a purpose other than to shock people like meat dresses or showing up to um, award shows and a fucking egg. Like, fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that that shit's fun. That boredom and that kind of primal need as a, a young person to piss somebody off mm-hmm. or express your frustration in some way. And did it on this massive scale. And um, the, you know, the influence of that we're still seeing now 30 years later. Right. It's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, so if you want more info on this story or to kind of get the details straight from the horse's mouth, you can watch uh, Party Monster, the documentary. Um, there's also the kind of like dramatic version of it, um, Party Monster starring Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green. And there's also another documentary called Limelight, um, about, uh, Limelight Nightclub and kind of specifically Peter Dation and his influence on New York nightclub culture and kind of what happened with that. Cause the, the DEA did go after him for drugs it didn't work out in the DEA's favor, but Peter Gation isn't around anymore. So I would also be interested to see um, kind of what happens with uh, Michael now that he's out. Um, right. He's apparently writing a book, so we've got that to look forward to. Nice. He does have a YouTube channel, um, so you can check that out. It's actually him... And um, one of the other couple kids who did a lot of the the design. So some of the parts of it that are really cool are they do a couple of shows where they pull out all their old clothes. Oh, cool. Um, So I would definitely recommend checking that out. One of my favorite things to do is honestly just to Google um, Club Kids and Michael Eilig and St. James because they documented a lot of their life during that time with their own videos. So like we said before, they were on talk shows. You can watch all of their appearances on the talk shows. You can see some of their outlaw parties uh, in McDonald's and uh, some of their own parties that they threw, which is really kind of cool. And it's also surreal because you watch these um, movies and read about the stories. And even though it was only 20 years ago, it seems like a long time ago, but you look at these movies and it makes it kind of all real again. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. And you can also check out, um, the interview that Michael did a few months after Angel's death and a few months before his arrest, where he talks about the murder 
very jokingly. I've seen that. Yeah. It's creepy as fuck. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you want more... Who wouldn't? Right? Check us out on all of the social medias. That's right. You can find us on Twitter, at Eruption, on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Eruption, or on our homepage, eruptionmusic.com. 